This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Could the shooters in the 80s and 90s prosper in today's game? What was it like playing with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale on the Celtics? Can the Clippers right the ship and set sail towards a title this year? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to bring on the show today Mike Smith, a former NBA player and current color commentator for the Clippers. And, um, you know, a guy who was very lucky to be able to sit next to Ralph Lawler every night to call games. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's more than just what you said. What you said is very true because nobody loves the game and loves the craft more than this guy does. At 78 years old, uh, I've never seen anybody prepare for a, a contest or a performance like he does. And he kind of instilled that in me when I first started. And we've now been working together 19, 20 years. And wow. he just like one of his things early on, Nick, was preparation is the key. And he says, if you can be prepared for anything, then no matter where the game takes you, you can go there. And so he was very, very intelligent in that way, very clever in teaching me, like, you, you can't prepare and then force facts in. He said, I, I want you to be prepared in all these areas and then let the game go where it takes you and you go and you present and you have fun with it. And so it's, it's really been a wonderful ride for the last 19 years. Wow. Well, you know, I get a chance to do uh, breakdowns and I'm sitting here and I have all the time in the world to go through footage over and over again and write out a voiceover. So I can't even imagine how hard it would be to do play by play in real time. I mean, have you ever tried to do that? Uh, yeah, I'm actually trained to do that. So um, my first four years in broadcasting at the NBA level, I should say, because I finished playing and then I did three years of college games, and I was your typical, you know, ex-player who jumped into the booth and did his alma mater's games. I did BYU games for three years, and I was the color guy on TV. But then I auditioned for an opening for the Clippers because I lived in L.A. on the radio side. And it's funny, I approached them and asked them if I could do their games in Spanish. I'm fluent in Spanish from, like, earlier church mission stuff. Wow. No me digas. And the, yeah, <laughs> la, la verdad. Es cierto. And, and so they, they said, no, we don't want to do that. And I said, you're missing out. There's a fan base out there. And they're like, no, it's too much work. And I said, listen, I'll go do it, and I'll find a station, and I'll – you know, I'll go sell the time. And they're like, no. But then they called me back two weeks later and they said, you know what? We may be making a change on the radio side. And if you want to go for that position, we'll give you a shot at it. And so with the help of Ralph, I put together a tape 
of me doing play-by-play on radio, which I'd never done. And I sat there and watched the game on TV with no sound on and into an old-fashioned microphone with a cord into an old cassette player, if you can believe that. (laughs) This is 20 years ago. I recorded myself doing a quarter of NBA play-by-play on the radio, or at least what I thought it should sound like. And they hired me on the spot. And so the first four years I did broadcasting uh, for the NBA, I did play-by-play. So I think I'm like, like along with Hot Rod Hundley, I think I'm one of only two who's ever like been a first-round pick in the NBA and played the NBA and then done play-by-play on the radio for the NBA. So it's kind of cool. So I'm, I'm trained to do that. I, I, I don't know what my future is. Maybe when Ralph retires, I can step over into his seat and do play-by-play. Yeah, the problem is Ralph is going to be there for another, I don't know, 20 years. So, you know, is there... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> what's your dream job it's then? True. You know, what's, your, what's your dream play-by-play job? I think any, I mean, I got, I got tons of family and kids in college in Utah. So that would be a great gig. If I got like the jazz play by play gig, mm-hmm. uh, the Clipper play by play gig would be a great one because I'm, I'm now, you know, 1500 games and 20 years basically with this team. And then of course, uh, there's a part of me that would love to go back to Boston. I mean, uh, that's, that's where my career started. It kind of started and failed and, you know, and probably many people's eyes back there, I was a bust of a pick. And and I think that would be kind of cool to come full circle and go back there whenever Mike Gorman decides to hang it up and, and maybe go do play-by-play there for that storied franchise. Huh. Well, you know, I think Mike and Ralph must be competing for who's going to be able to go longer uh, in this business. <laughs> uh, so... We'll we'll have to see how that goes, and you know I I had we have we have to talk about the Clippers, but you know this is just grabbing me because we're talking a little about the Celtics. And you played, you know, when Larry Bird was there in McHale, and here here's right. one quick question I want. And you were a shooter, um, you know. I grew up. I'm pretty much your contemporary, and you know, having not really had the three as a thing when we were younger growing up, uh, you know, I keep having to uh, argue with youngins who don't seem to understand that. I think there were a lot of shooters who could easily be shooting threes like they do today if they had understood that they should practice it more and actually utilize it more in the offense. Like all the shooters from back then would easily be three-point shooters at this volume. Can you confirm that for me? (laughs) Well, you're absolutely right, first and foremost. And um, let me just put it this way. I'll, I'll give it to you from a numbers perspective because guys ask me all the time, oh, uh, Mike, you, you played back then and, you know, you, you would have never made it today. And I said, are you nuts? Yeah. I said, when I played, there's, what, 24 teams or 26 teams. As I kind of came into the league, we added a couple. But, I mean, think about those numbers, 24 times 12, right? You barely get to 300 mm-hmm. unless you go to 26 teams. Now well, there's – 30 teams and 15 guys a team. So you can do that math. That's what 450. So there's 150 more players in today's highest level of basketball than there was 20 years ago, 150, 33% more. So people say, Oh, you know, players today are so much better. I said, no, they're not. I said, there's no way they're not. Uh, There's no way they are. I mean, so we were better. And I said, we were more well-rounded. We did more things. I said, you have a lot more specialists today. 
And I said, if a guy has one really good trait today, he makes it. And I said, back then you had to be able to do everything. You had to be able to shoot, dribble, pass, guard. I mean, mm-hmm. and the three the three ball game was not even a, a thought. There were no three point specialists, except for you know as 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 you got into the you know nineties, you had the Craig Hodges and you had that group starting to emerge, right? The, the guys mm-hmm. who were starting to shoot more threes on a team that had a really good player that you had to double, and so they were starting to catch the idea of, oh, they're going to double him, let's kick to this shooter. But, I mean, heck, we shot, we ran plays, Nick. We ran plays to get the ball in the post to either Larry, Kevin, or Robert, or Dennis Johnson against a smaller guard. That, that, those are our, our first option. Or we ran plays to get a 17-foot jump shot. Mm-hmm. That's basketball in the late 80s. That's what we did. That's where guys operated, that's, and guys got to their favorite spots. And if you threw the ball to McHale in the post, yeah, he's going to score. Or Parrish in the post, yeah. Or think Kareem. Every team had a center. But every team had a two-guard and a three-man who could curl and shoot 17-footers. So you're telling me that the best shooters of those days couldn't have extended out and shot three balls? The best example I can give you is towards my third year, McHale is kind of getting the idea that this three ball is kind of fun. (laughs) So McHale's the best post player I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But he's also as good as any one of us on the team at 15 to 18 feet. He just never shot from there. But he's as good as Bird from there, and I'm as good as both of them from there, from 15 to 18 feet. Bird and I would shoot for an hour and a half after practice to see who could get up five on the other guy. If he made and I missed, he's up one. You get the idea. And then mm-hmm. he controls the next shot, and you had to duplicate it. So it's kind of a version of horse, but you had to duplicate the shot. If he missed and I made, I got a point, and then I got control of the next shot. We'd go for an hour, and nobody would get up five. Nobody. Mm-hmm. We'd never get up five on the other guy. Nobody ever won the game. Wow. I mean, the guy who won was the guy who was up one or two. And I'd never met anybody in my life who could shoot like I could at my size until I get to the Celtics. And now I got two. Both Bird and McHale could, could go on par with me from 15 to 20 feet. And I was like, what? I mean, McHale had an unbelievable touch. Bird's touch is already renowned. We know that. But towards the end, McHale stepped out and started shooting threes. Now he shot three a game or two a game. Bird, for crying out loud, was only shooting three a game. As a team, we only shot seven a game my third year. My first year, we only shot three a game. Mm -hmm. It's so (laughs) different, but you're absolutely right. The shooters of yesteryear would have adapted and would have shot from that range because of the value. Nobody thought of it that way. It really was a novelty when the three-pointer came into the league. It was kind of a fun thing you used to catch up if you were way down in the last two minutes. I want to talk about our friends over at Blue Apron. They deliver fresh, high-quality ingredients, and trust me, they make a big difference. When my wife compliments me on making pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple, don't get me wrong, I'll take all the credit, but it's really Blue Apron's simple, easy-to-follow instructions. You can customize the menu to fit your taste and schedule, and it's affordable. At less than 10 bucks per person per meal, you'll be... 
you'll be making savory dishes like vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips. It's the equivalent of hitting a game-winning three in the defender's face every time you fire up your stove. So head over to blueapron.com slash coachnick and you'll get your first three meals free with free shipping by simply typing in that simple URL, blueapron.com slash coachnick. I'm telling you, this is a game changer. And by the way, we have a lot of kids who will go back and look at the shooting percentages from three. That, and that's what drives me crazy is that, like you said, they're only shooting them at the end of quarters when they're down and just chucking them up. They're not running elevator plays to, like, get people open for three-point shots. And, um, and, you know, like when I hear people try and criticize Isaiah Thomas as not being a good shooter, like the original Isaiah Thomas, uh, I know – I don't know about you, but I, was, I'm a, I grew up in the state in Chicago Stadium with the Bulls. Every time he shot the ball from outside, there was a gasp because they knew it was going in. Like, that was a lights-out shooter. Of course, his three-point percentage is low, but that's what it just drives me crazy. And I love to be able to talk to guys who are there in the thick of it who could at least give more insight than I can. My second year, we go to the playoffs. We beat Indiana in the first round. That's a Chuck Person, Rick Smith, Reggie Miller, really good team. Mm-hmm. Three out of five series. We beat them in five. We play the Pistons. Okay, the Pistons are going to go on and win the championship this year. We don't know it at the time, but we got them in the second round. They have home court advantage. We're uh, 2-2 through four games. We go to the Palace to play game five. And we are up in this game, up with like two minutes to game, two minutes to go in the game. And Isaiah, at the end of a shot clock, right in front of our bench, hits the most difficult turnaround end of the shot clock three, uh, considering the magnitude of the moment I've ever seen. And he makes it, and they go in to win that game and then beat us at game six in the Garden. But does he not make that shot? I bet we go on and win that game and have a chance to go home and close them out. Mm-hmm. Crazy. It's, uh, you know, it, it's really frustrating, but I'm glad that we could get that insight. But let, let's get a little bit contemporary, if you don't mind. We can talk about the Clippers. I got some interesting stats to throw out there at you. I'm, I'm sure we love stats out here, but... I, I don't know. I feel like it's a little dirty secret or dirty little secret that over the last 19 games, the Clippers are actually 9-10. and 10. They're not playing so well. Uh, anything that you can pinpoint uh, off the top of your head that kind of strikes you is what's going on? Oh, that is a loaded question. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so close to it, Nick, that I, I see everything. And when you broadcast for a team, you have to, like, watch yourself sometimes because you see all the warts. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You you tend to see every little flaw, and I try to then take a step back and say, okay, let me look at the big picture. This team jumped out of the gates 14-2. and two. They were ranked number one defensively in those first 16 games. They thought they were invincible. You had Blake coming back from injury. Uh, you were healthy. You were fired up. The way the season ended the year before with an injury to Paul and Blake in the same game, which was game three, against Portland, a team they had beaten by 25 and 35 in games one and two. They end up losing the series in six. So you had a team determined to, like, make this right. Uh, the 17th game is a game at Detroit. And they laid an egg. And even though they're down 10 most of the game, in the third quarter and early fourth, they come back and they like catch their rhythm, and they take a four-point lead on Detroit, at Detroit. And it's like, yeah, we got them. 
and they laid down and they stopped playing and they figured they had them and Detroit retook the lead about five minutes to go and they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So they lost that game. And, it, and I'm just going to tell you this, from an outsider's perspective, it affected their psyche. So huh. Doc chastised them after the game, said they disrespected the game, they didn't come prepared, and they thought they could just catch up and beat a team, which they did catch up, but then they had to do it a second time and they didn't have it. So Detroit got some momentum at home and the crowd got into it, they beat us. Close game, but we lost. Um, it affected them. Roll forward. Two nights later, we're at Indiana. Indiana rocks them, like by 20. It's not even close. They don't come prepared that game. And so now that psyche or that armor, which now has a little chink in it, it has been affected a little bit again. Now, granted, they live with a few demons, right? They've had some playoff collapses against Houston, Oklahoma City. They've had some moments where it wasn't so great, right? Mm-hmm. But they're multi-talented, and they got this group that's together. So out of the gates, the familiarity factor is great. They're, they're rolling. Now we go to Brooklyn. Same trip. We go to Brooklyn. Up 19 in the fourth quarter and lose the game in overtime to Brooklyn. You know Brooklyn. You know where they are now. You know where they were then. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had four guys on the team I'd never even heard of their names. So uh, they win. Brooklyn wins. They lose three in a row. Now, they recovered and, you know, and, and, and just kind of hovered, but not great, but then won three in a row and then lose a couple. And so then they were back to being a normal good team that wins 50 a year. That's what they, they felt like after those losses that I thought affected them and, and proved to them they were a little bit mortal. Well, then the injuries hit. So now Blake goes down, then Chris goes down, then they're out together, and then Blake comes back for a time when Chris is out. Blake rolls. And Blake has an unbelievable February, and they win some games, but you're thinking, wow, he's like 28, 9, and 6 in February. And he's like back to the best player in the world, kind of LeBron-like numbers, and you're like, whoa. And I thought they were going to make a move, Nick. Mm-hmm. at the trading deadline. I just thought they were. They, they'd gone through, a, even though Blake was playing great, they'd gone through a poor stretch, and they won the last four games before the break. And upon the heels of that, they get the news that Chris is coming back. And Chris is coming back from a broken thumb or torn ligaments in the left thumb early. Mm-hmm. And now I think the sense was, okay, we just won four in a row. Chris is going to be back the first game of the All-Star break or the next. Two weeks earlier than they'd hoped, we're going to be okay. Well, all that happened. They don't make a trade. Chris does come back. They're not okay. The first game back is Golden State. They play without Chris. They get rocked. The next game back is San Antonio. Chris does play. They get beat. And then the numbers that you quote are there. Mm-hmm. So since a 14-2 and two start, they're a 500 club. And they, the best way I can describe it is they've forgotten who they are and who they could be. Fair I enough. don't know how else to say it. I don't know how else to say it. They, they need to, like, take a step back away from games, and there's been no break in the schedule, honestly. The month of March has been brutal. We, we had 10 games in 10 different time zones in a row. 
no two games in the same time zone of the 10. It was just go, come, go, come, go. It was unreal. So there's no time to practice. There's no time to go over video and, and pick up the slippage. But honestly, the best thing that they could do right now is like take a step back, take a day off, and watch footage of them two years ago. Because when they were running and flying up the court with Reddick on one wing and, say, Crawford on another wing and Blake Handling or Chris Handling and high pick and rolls and just right into stuff, they were unbeatable offensively. They don't do that right now. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I went through the game on Saturday because I wanted to see like what was going on there that, that led to that loss. And what struck me even from the beginning of the game was just, you know, how slow they are in the half court right now. And, you know, they're middle of the league in terms of passes per game, which kind of makes sense to me. And the pace is not great. But and that's OK. But it just seems like there's a they're like underwater a little bit trying to get to spots and get the ball moving. Uh, have you noticed is that like a bigger trend that didn't than just Saturday? Well, Doc's aware of it. I mean, it's, it, 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 these aren't things that I'm pointing out that he doesn't know. He's constantly imploring them to push and run faster and play with pace. Mm-hmm. I think the injuries are a part of that. Like, significant injuries to Chris and Blake caused lots of missed time, so it's tough to be in your optimum cardiovascular shape where you can run full speed. So I think they try, but they fall short. But you're absolutely right. They're not doing it. And when you talk about this team in a half court, what comes into play, put, put it this way, Nick, their biggest strengths are they have the most athletic running big in the game, right? DeAndre Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the most powerful, uh, all-around skilled power forward in the game in Blake. So Blake can grab a rebound. He can go coast to coast and make a play. He can score, he can shoot, he can pass. You got the venerable, you know, Chris Paul, who can make any play on the fly. And you got Reddick, your other starter, who can shoot, spotting up on the fly. So all those things are their strengths. They got a decent bench, good pieces, scoring pieces, defending pieces. It it all kind of works. Here's the thing that they don't have they're not long, they don't have length. So Blake is short-armed. So in tight quarters and in congestion, he doesn't score over people. Blake scores in space when he's got a running start, a powerful jump, or a, a, a run out. DJ, yes, but let's not talk about DJ. Reddick is 6'4 and short. Short arms, you know, not an athlete in terms of, like, not a jumper. Unbelievable precision shooter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not long. Chris, not long. The, the backcourt is short. So now you find yourself in the half court and where a team can lock you or load you a certain way towards help. Utah does this very well. San Antonio does this well. They'll keep you on a side. Golden State's great at keeping you from going where you want, where you reverse the ball. And now you're facing long defenders in tight quarters. That's where the flaws become, ugh, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, Golden, Golden State can throw three forwards on you, and San Antonio does the same with, like, Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard. But Golden State can throw Iguodala, Clay Thompson, and Durant on you when Durant was healthy on your three wing players, and all of a sudden you're like, what? You didn't you, mention you have Draymond. a hard time getting a shot off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and Draymond guards Blake, mm-hmm. and he guards Blake well because of his long arms, and he's clever. And mm-hmm. so now – 
you know, and Blake's more powerful than Draymond, but sometimes they put that JaVale McGee behind him. And so now Blake's like, oh, okay, where do I go now? Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you that that those are the flaws when they play in the half court. But in the full court, they're unbeatable. In the full court, you just see, all I see is potential and power and uh, unbelievable spacing and shots. And I see this offense that if it rolls like that, they're tough to beat. But right now they're having a tough time getting to that open court. Yeah. I mean, the problem with the playoffs is that usually it slows down and there's less opportunities to run. And I do know that one thing that can really help is Harry's Razors, a place to get high-quality razors to shave your face. The trial set came to my door in a cool package with shaving gel, four razors, an easy-to-hold handle, and an even cooler story about their founders, Jeff and Andy, who literally bought their own factory to make razors for two bucks a blade, half of what you'd pay when going through the hassle of driving to the drugstore, waiting for the dude to open up the special locked case, since I guess there's a black market for stolen razor blades or something, and that's if you even remember to buy them while you're getting shampoo and soap and everything else. So head over to harrys.com slash coachnick and you'll get their trial set for free. There's a small shipping fee and you'll get a truly great shave out of it and you'll always have that smooth shave and soft skin. That's harrys.com slash coachnick to have all of your shaving needs delivered right to your door and you'll have a shave as smooth as a crossover step back pull up swish. But you know the bigger issue it looks to me is the defense and through the first 56 games, they were ranked 10th. And I think in that opening 16 games, they were like all-time great. Now, in the last 19 games, they're ranked 23rd. And I'm kind of curious, you know, there, there's we see some net rating issues here on the individually, like Spates uh, is really struggling, went from almost net neutral to negative 12 in those last 19. And Rivers has gone down a little bit too, So uh, and Crawford. So, you know, what are they going to do about the defensive end? Well, they have to be better, and they, they just they got to lock in. I mean, there's, there's no secrets to the defense. you got to do it. The thing that's happening is they're getting beat off the dribble. And the thing that Doc said was happening was for a while there, early on, they were switching everything. Mm-hmm. And that was great when they were all healthy because they were locked in and they were like in one unit and they were in sync and there was this spider web that would move together, but they were switching everything. And then when the injuries started to happen and one or two key pieces was missing and they still started switching things, they weren't the same. Then they all came back and it was still like, hey, let's switch everything, which is great if you're all the same size and you all got the same skill set, but that wasn't working. They'll get beat off the dribble. And so Doc, you know, about a month ago said, we need to get back to the basics and we need to guard our guy and we need to stop our guy from penetrating. And that's really been the biggest problem is somebody gets beat off the dribble and then the whole defense rotates. You know what, you know what happens then. Right. Well, you know, in the beginning of the fourth quarter against the Kings, uh, even though they had a big lead and they actually extended it for the first four minutes, if you look at the shots they were giving up there, they, it, like there were signs that this was going to be a problem, like they, a wide-open three to McLemore in the corner. Galloway gets a layup, but they're both missed. Uh, corner, uh, Tolliver uh, gets a three. It's a good, you know, decent look. McLemore gets fouled on, on, on a layup and free throws, and then Galloway gets a wide-open three in transition. And it was almost like you could see this sort of thing happening where they weren't getting back quickly enough. Uh, they were so deliberate on the offensive then that there just seems to be – it's like an energy thing, I imagine. I think it's what you're talking about, right? Doc is just trying to stir up the, and get more energy from them. 
Yeah. Um, uh, the, the biggest, their Achilles heel, if there's one that has plagued this group for four years, is they don't put teams away. So whatever you call that, that killer instinct factor, they, they just tend to, they'll get up on a team and they'll be like, okay, we got them. But you don't really got them. And, and sometimes it's not that they play not to lose mm-hmm. and they stop trying to do well or they stop trying to win, but the pace tends to slow. They tend to take some threes instead of, you know, continuing to attack. And that happens. It, 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 it is a character trait of this team that they get up and they think it's done. And most times, you know, it can be, but on an occasion like Saturday or Sunday, whenever it was, I think only the second time in what, 6,746 <laughs> <laughs> games where a team was up 18 with five minutes to go, they happened to lose. It, it happens. A crazy number I saw. Yeah, that that is you're right. It, it's when you say it that way, you realize how crazy it is. And you know, we're looking at some of the numbers in their five man rotations. And one thing that's kind of as we as we wrap this up, uh, you know, Paul Pierce seems to be having some sort of resurrection. We're seeing you know instances where his net rating is good. The the there's a five man lineup they're using with him out there that's doing really really well. Uh, I suppose this has been the plan, right? To slow, slowly phase him in and get more minutes as the season gets to the end. Yeah, I think so. I think Doc's been very careful and used him sporadically, but almost hardly at all. And now he's kind of like, okay, let's, let's ramp it up and give him a chance. And, you know, he's been okay. He, he's in the right spot a lot. He's certainly not what he was athletically at 39. And so he, he can still get a shot off, which is good. And listen, it, it, it sounds like generally that I'm really down on this team. I'm not, I, 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 I see, like I said, I see all the flaws because mm-hmm. I also see the potential. Like, I, like I, I'm invested, you know, 19 years with this organization or, or like five or six years with this group. And I'm kind of like, yeah, come on. You know, you've got a chance. And the way it started, you saw the extreme potential when they lock in defensively. They weren't even good offensively early on. They really weren't. And everyone says, well, you didn't play anybody. That's not true. They beat whoever was in front of them. Mm-hmm. That was at San Antonio. That was Toronto. That was Chicago. That was, you know, anybody who was there in front of them. They were taken down. So it was kind of fun. So again, you get invested, and you're like, ah, yeah, this group's got a chance. This group still does have a chance. Now it's getting late, Nick. It's getting late to flip a switch, and that's the hard thing in the NBA. It's really difficult to kind of all of a sudden vamp up. And Cleveland's going to have to deal with this too because, mm-hmm. you know, they're probably bored with the regular season and LeBron's probably like, yeah, you know, my life is seasonal now. Nobody's going to give me an MVP anymore, but whatever. Come playoffs, you know, I'll be the guy again. And maybe he can, but it's really hard to do. And so you want to be playing well. Now they still have a chance for the fourth seed if they can outplay Utah. I guess by two games the rest of the way. Clippers have, what, seven games left? Utah probably has nine or eight after last night. So the Clippers mm-hmm. have to go six and one and hope that Utah goes six and three. And if they finish tied, Clippers beat them 3-1 in the season series, they'd get the four seed and, and have them in the home court advantage in the first round, which I think is key. They're going to win that first round and you know move on. I think they need home court. 
Yeah, I'm all, it kind of stinks, though, because then they're lined up with the number one seed in the second round. But uh, I, I do th- want to throw <laughs> well, this out whatever. there. Whatever. <laughs> You're yeah. either going to get them there or you're going to get them in the third round, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, you know, uh, you know, the one thing I want to ask you really quickly as we wrap up is Maurice Bates, Austin Rivers, Paul Pierce, Raymond Felton, Jamal Crawford. That is their second most played lineup over the last 19 games in this rough stretch. It's plus 19.7. They're blowing teams out oh. when, that, when they're on the, on the court. And it's not every game. It's They've only played it's, – it's limited because Pierce, obviously, but – uh, I, I don't know. They're they're like locking teams down. They're scoring really well. Uh, have you? Is that? I know it's you know a smaller played lineup, but has that grabbed you? Have you noticed that? Have you seen? Like, can you answer like what what about that alchemy is working? Part of part of that was that incredible run by Crawford against the Jazz when that lineup was out there. So he just went on fire. I think he had seventeen in the fourth quarter ah. against Utah the other night on okay. Saturday. So it's a little bit. Uh, magnified or glorified, but but Spates has been doing a job. Felton is terrific. Felton hasn't made a shot for a month. I'm telling you, he he's made one three the last 18 games. But in spite of that, he he just battles and he gets the ball to the right place. He does a lot of good things. Crawford's had a terrific month. Rivers has had the best year of his life. Spates, whether he shoots threes and makes them or not, is always defending took three charges the other day so that's probably part mm-hmm. of it you know that that group is is you know giving it their full and obviously going against a second unit most times so they're they've been on the plus side but i think rotations nick will slow down come right. playoff time like i don't think you'll see a five starter and a five sub i think you'll see variations you'll see more of chris paul on the floor with a second unit or blake with a second unit where you have a score at all times it kind of makes it difficult too. I think uh, the, the two the two coaches who best exemplify how you should play are Popovich and Jerry Sloan, and both could care less about what the defense does. If that makes sense, I remember talking to Sloan and Popovich separate occasions preseason. What do you think about this? He goes, "I don't care one thing about my opposition right now." He said, "I want to get us right." Mm-hmm. I just worry, I'm just worried about what we're doing offensively. See, I don't care about them. I'll care about them a little bit later come April. But I don't care now. I want to get us right. But if you think about it, what Sloan did, he always subbed the same way. Stocked in the first eight minutes, in comes his replacement, whoever it was, Howard Isley or whoever it was during those years. He just, he just always subbed the same way. And guys got into a rhythm. They got, in, they got used to those minutes. Absolutely. And that's interesting. I think coaching could use more of that sort of like you have your minutes all divided up ahead of time and you're like, okay, you are now playing the G2 spot, like where you go in, yeah, like four minutes to go in the first and you play your four minutes. Uh, and you're right. I think we're going to, they're going to end up, you know, uh, that's the saving grace for the Clippers. It looks like is these, these uh, uh, lineups are going to get shrunken down and you're going to get like, you know, the pure CP3 and Blake out there with DeAndre a lot more. And, you know, they're, they're, even so. in the stretch, those are still the, you know, those are the three-man lineups that are doing really well. Yeah. So, well, Mike, you, you brought it you brought it hard. I, you gave me a lot more time than we thought, thought I was going to get. I can't thank you enough for joining <laughs> us and, and really breaking this down. I mean, this is a really great conversation. I think a lot of the Clippers fans are going to really uh, get a lot more insight than they normally would have on the team. You got it. And uh, so thanks for coming on the show. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You win. 
Are you in, Mike? I'm in. 